Welcome. It's Tuesday, May 4th, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes regular commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. In addition, we explore various topics about the Middle East and the Islamic world here on our podcast. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please subscribe by going to hoover.org, clicking on publications, and go to podcasts. You can subscribe to any and all of our podcasts, by the way, including The Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, The Libertarian with Victor Davis Hanson, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. My name is Russell Berman. I'm director of the working group, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kim Gaddis. Kim is a Lebanese journalist, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the author of a book of great interest to listeners of this podcast, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. This is an impressively rich book, intertwining political history, international relations, religious sectarianism, and something too rare in discussions of the region, profiles of writers and intellectuals who have grappled with the challenges of the Middle East. This integration of culture and politics reminds me of some of the writings of Fouad Ajami, who initiated this working group. I've come away with a long reading list of authors I want to follow up on. Kim, thank you for the book, and welcome to the podcast. Let me ask you some questions. First, uh, your narrative takes the reader through more than four decades and across a vast expanse, from Pakistan in the east to Egypt in the west, as well as Washington and even Brooklyn. But you set the stage in 1979. Could you explain the significance of 1979 in Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also in Pakistan that you discuss as well? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, first of all, it's great to be on, on the podcast and thank you for reading my book and bringing it to your, to your audience. You know, 1979 was a vintage year of world events. It was really um, a year that shook the world in many ways, the Middle East, but also elsewhere from the UK with Margaret Thatcher to China. Um, but it was a year in which a lot of events took place, which only later became intertwined and only later did it become clear how they were connected. In the region, the key events that I discussed that took place in 1979 are the Iranian revolution and the return from exile of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, uh, um, um, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, mixing it up with the current uh, supreme leader. Um, there was the uh, two week long siege of the Holy Mosque in uh, Mecca in Saudi Arabia. It was the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviets, all in that one year, February, November, December. Um, and that's the reason why Pakistan is included in this book, because, of course, the, the, the effort to liberate the, so, the, the Afghanistan from the Soviets brought in um, Pakistan as a staging ground for the, the Mujahideen. Those events, as I said, were seemingly unconnected initially, but they become completely intertwined and together they launch a dynamic 
that unleashes a series of events that washes over the region over the following 40 years. And that's what I describe in, in Black Wave. The way they become intertwined is that Iran and Saudi Arabia before 1979, unlike what many people think, were actually allies. They were twin pillars in US policy in the region to counter communism and the Soviets. Two royals, the Shah of Iran, a Shia, and the king of Saudi Arabia, a Sunni, perfectly happy to be allies. There was some competition, but it was state to state and it was overall friendly. So those are already two, um, let's say, misconceptions that we have today about the region that I quickly undo in the book. Iran and Saudi Arabia were not always enemies, and Sunnis and Shias were not always at each other's throat. Um, when Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini comes back from uh, exile, he not only takes over the revolution, which was ostensibly leftist and nationalist with an Islamist element, uh, by, and turns it over into an Islamic uh, revolution, turning Iran into a theocracy, but he also clearly shows that he has ambitions beyond the Shias of Iran, beyond Iran, and beyond the Shia community around the world. He wants to be leader of the Muslim world. And so very quickly, the Saudis realize they have a problem. They're sad, they were sad to see the Shah go. They were very worried about a communist takeover. They're initially relieved to see that it's actually somebody who kind of speaks their language. He talks about the Quran, about God, about values and Islamic values. And then they realize he has grand designs and these grand designs are going to rub up against theirs. They are the custodians of the two holy sites in Islam. They are the leaders of the Muslim world. Um, and so that competition between these two countries starts there. And one of the first arenas where it starts showing, where the Saudis start trying to show their, their greatness as leaders of the Muslim world, because their role as custodian has been undermined by what happened in Mecca in 1979, they start backing the effort against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And 1979 is the birth of the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's the birth of political Islam. It becomes the starting point of the birth of militant Islam as well. Or let me rephrase, it wasn't the birth of political Islam because of course we had the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and, and so on, but really the empowerment and the arrival to power of political Islam with, with, with Khomeini um, in Iran. All of that sets the region on a completely different trajectory than it had been so far, this confluence of events. Um, and it transforms the region to the extent that today, you know, we ask ourselves what happened to us. And that's the starting question at the beginning of my book. Right. You come back to this question, what happened to us? What happened to the region across these, these, these 40 years? Uh, the way you set the stage, it's about a competition between between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, a competition that plays out largely, if not exclusively, in other countries, in, in Egypt, in Lebanon, and, and elsewhere. Does that formula still hold today? Rivalry between these two large countries played out on other terrain? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately for us in the region, unfortunately for Yemenis, for Syrians, for Lebanese, for Iraqis, uh, that rivalry still plays out. Now, I don't want to ascribe all the problems of this region to the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. 
you know, we can talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict, we can talk about the ruthless rule of dictators, um, but it is the undercurrent that drives a lot of what we've seen over the last four decades, and it is still at the heart of a lot of what we see um, today. If we just look a little bit at how it played out in different countries, you know, Iran started trying to export its revolution, those Islamic ideals um, centered around Iranian revolutionary Shiism, state-led Shiism. And it started trying to export this wherever it could. And the easiest place was Lebanon because it has a Shia community. Uh, because uh, acolytes of Khomeini had been in Lebanon before 1979 training with Palestinian guerrillas uh, to learn how to do guerrilla warfare to bring down the Shah. So were the leftist and um, nationalist Iranian revolutionaries. They were all here. Lebanon was in the middle of a civil war. So it was fertile ground for all sorts of guerrilla groups to come and train. So not only do they then, not only does does do the, Iranian, um, do the Iranians around Khomeini see an opportunity to, uh, to use Lebanon as a staging ground to, to, to train for the removal of the Shah? But then once they're in power, they see this as a, as a two-way street. So they come back uh, and they work with the people they already know in Lebanon and they set up um, an, uh, an, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps base in the Bekaa Valley in, 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 in the 80s. Um, they start spreading the gospel um, women start veiling with, um, with a black all-enveloping all chador, which was not very common in Lebanon before. You start having religious radios playing, you know, belting out Quran and recitations. And it changes. It changes the fabric of, um, of society um, by conviction or by fear or by force. And the Saudis are doing the same thing. Because they suddenly feel challenged in their role as leaders of the Muslim world, it becomes a holier-than-thou tha holier competition. And so slowly, although the Saudis had already been sort of um, spreading their largesse as custodians of the two holy sites before 1979, after that year, it becomes a methodical uh, or certainly sustained effort. And the money starts flowing to countries like Pakistan. It starts flowing to countries like Egypt. In Pakistan, it's really the birth of all the uh, sectarian militias, you know, Sunni militias that Zia al-Haq, the dictator at the time in Pakistan, who's, who becomes an ally of the West in the fight against the Soviets, he helps foster the rise of sectarian militias, something this region has never seen. Um, and in Egypt, it changes the culture, the sort of the proselytizing of um, by Saudi money, or with Saudi money um, to spread, you know, Saudi-style Islam, which is very literalist, puritanical, ultra-orthodox, described with one word sometimes as Wahhabism. In Egypt, it changes people's understanding of their own culture. Women start to veil, actresses uh, start to renounce their art, and you know, don the the black abaya as well. So it changes the culture, and that's why the question is there, what happened to us? On a geopolitical level, it also has an impact, of course, because the Saudis feel threatened. They see in Saddam Hussein a convenient ally, a buffer against the Iranians. Uh, Pakistan 
um, is changed, as I mentioned, by these militias. So these dynamics start taking on a life of their own. And that's why the rivalry lives on, because all these different elements are still there. It's being used differently today. It's not as pronounced in Egypt anymore. In some places, you can really feel both Saudi Arabia and Iran, like for a long time, that's what you had in Lebanon. Um, in Egypt, you felt Saudi Arabia more. In Pakistan, Iran tried really to use the Shia community, but it, it's, a, it's a large minority and the Saudis are much more powerful there. Um, but everywhere you look, you will find that there are elements of, of this rivalry. And today, I know you want to get into some of those, uh, those details. Today, that playbook still works with different nuances, some different players, but a lot of the same people are still there uh, with the same textbook. Yeah. Uh, I want to hold on to a few important points here. One is that Sunni and Shia were not always at each other's necks right, prior to the 1979. Uh, secondly, that we do have these two significant regional powers, each exporting its ideology, if we could put it, put it that way, with political agenda. Uh, and thereby mobilizing sectarian passions that uh, people on the ground, if you will, uh, um, somehow succumb to. Uh, and you've taken us to to Egypt in your in your in your comments just now. And I want to talk about one one event there that is really um, 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 deeply concerning. As I read this passage in your book, it's the murder of uh, Shahata in 2013 in. Abu Musalam, which is 20 miles south of Cairo. I want to quote from your book, page 273. A mob started gathering around the house in the afternoon, dozens and then hundreds hurling stones at the house, the Molotov cocktails calling Shahata's name. They scaled the walls, climbed onto the roof of the two-story house and tore a hole through its flimsy concrete ceiling. When Shahata and some companions came out to calm the crowd, the mob beat them, tied their hands, and dragged them through the streets. End of quote. So that's a very grim and sad scene. And then you, um, Kim, you go on to ask, where did that blind hatred come from? And I'm interested in the, the, the participation on the ground level, the subjective experience of this. Um, as an answer, you mentioned religious stations, satellite channels filled with sectarian vitriol. Can you comment on this kind of violence? Uh, does this kind of religious fervor still characterize the region? And I ask this because by the end of the book, you seem to be suggesting that nationalism may be replacing religion in some parts of the region. So let me start with the comment you had just before uh, going into the, the, the anecdote uh, or the terrible story of, of Hassan Shahata. It's absolutely important to remember that, um, so as we said, not only were Saudi Arabia and Iran not always enemies or, or you know, mortal enemies, um, not only was this cultural intolerance that we saw wash over the region, uh, the norm before 1979, the region was vibrant, tolerant, diverse, from art to culture, to TV, to movies, to, um, uh, to, uh, to poetry, and still is, and I'll, I will, we'll come to that in a moment. But it's very important to, to, to really um, talk about the fact that Sunnis and Shias uh, were not always at, their, at, at each other's throats. Because we've heard even from people like President Obama at the time saying, oh, you know, people have been killing each other in this region for millennia, and they'll keep doing that. And that's a reference to the, you know, millennia-long 
um, theological schism between Sunnis and Shias. And that is a historical fact. I'm not denying that, of course not. And there are differences and there is tension and it's always been there. And there have been moments of violence. There have been wars, but so has, has there been between Catholics and Protestants. Um, and over the course of history, um, Sunnis and Shias haven't killed each other more and probably even less than Catholics and, and Protestants. It's just that these are the headlines that we have with us today. Um, and it starts in our modern times because the Saudis and the Iranians weaponize sectarianism, because they want to rally people each to their side, because they want to whip up sentiments so they can you know, start frenzies like that one in Egypt and keep people mobilized. Um, you know, nationalism, religious fervor, populism, um, it's, it's all the same in, in a way. It all depends on what tools you're using. And the Saudis and the Iranians used sectarianism and they weaponized sectarian um, identities. And so what's important to mention about this incident in 2013 um, is that Hassan Shahata was an Egyptian um, who had converted to Shiaism. He was a Sunni who had converted to Shiaism. And this is somehow, you know, an obsession of some people that the Iranians are using uh, conversion to take over countries like Egypt, you know, in a country that is, I think, 98% Sunni, um, you know, a few Shias aren't really going to turn the tide against uh, Saudi influence. But the sectarian vitriol on these TV stations that are belting out um, Wahhabi style exclusionary sentiments, you know, very anti-Shia, you know, this ends up seeping into your mind, into your psyche as an Egyptian. And, you know, the authorities, you know, pro-Western Hosni Mubarak didn't really do very much to calm this. I, I realize 2013 is after he was removed. But throughout all this time, he also talked about, you know, the possibility of conversions and Iran, you know, Iran's influence and Shias as you know, there is this idea that Shias can be a fifth column in your country and so on. That's something that the Saudis feed and they do it to their own Shias in their country. That incident specifically is very rare. Um, I don't think there is anything similar that's ever happened in Egypt. It's happened, there's a lot of sectarian, because there are so few Shias. Um, it's happened in Pakistan. Sectarian violence in Pakistan, which was really birthed by the dictatorship of Zial Haq uh, has been horrendous. And um, it started in the 80s, you know, ground zero for sectarian violence, state sponsored, state promoted sectarian violence by militias in this wider region. Uh, the ground zero for that is really Pakistan, 1986, with one specific incident, which uh, I won't go into now. And it, again, it takes on a life of its own in, in various um, countries. But the sectarian violence in Pakistan has been absolutely horrendous. Across the region and all the way to Pakistan, sectarian violence has died down. The paroxysm, of course, was after 2003 and the US invasion of, of Iraq, and the rise of people like Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi, who was incredibly virulently opposed to Shias. That was really the, the, the paroxysm, something we had never seen. You know, I grew up in the civil war in Lebanon, and I had never heard really 
you know, when I was a child or, or a teenager, I was not a journalist. But the term Sunni Shia, it just didn't feature in our lexicon, in our, in our words, in our, in our consciousness. Um, it's really a product of these 40 years. And as I said, 2003 unleashes it uh, to degrees never seen before. And if there could ever be, I mean, and, and I hesitate to put it like that, if there could ever be a silver lining to the horrors of Daesh, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, it is that their horrors as Sunni killing Shias, but also Sunnis really awoke people in this region about the insanity that was unfolding in front of them. People really paused and thought, you know, they'll come for Shias and then they'll come for us. And Shias thought, you know, we're not happy about them going after Sunnis either. I mean, the violence that was meted out was horrendous. And there was a sudden or, or a slow realization that this is, this is terrible and this needs to be stopped. But today, as you, as, as you rightly point out, you know, as Saudi leaders and Iranian leaders realize that religion is not that much that, that interesting anymore to a younger generation who wants to move on, move away from sectarianism, move away from religion, you know, all the polls show that they are resorting to nationalism because the rivalry is still alive and because they still need to whip up um, the crowds. Yeah. I want to avoid leaving listeners with a sense that the religious narrative is only about extremism. Uh, there's more to religion than extremism. And your book makes clear a wide range and diversity of Islam in the Middle East. One of the many interesting intellectual figures you introduce has much to say about Islam in the modern world, Nasser Abu Zaid. Could you speak a bit about him and how he figures in your book, please? Thank you so much for asking that question, because that is really the purpose of the book as well, to show this region in its diversity, um, in its uh, incredible richness of literature and poetry, as you mentioned in the introduction, of art, of, of diversity in thought. And those are the characters that I try to, the real people that I try to bring to life um, in the book, who are um, you know, Egyptians, Iraqis, Syrians, uh, uh, Pakistanis, Saudis, Iranians, Lebanese. Um, you know, of course, I always make sure that they're men and women. They're half-half um, in the book. They're Sunnis and Shias. And they're all conservative Muslims. They're observant. They pray. They fast. They are proud of their religion. But they're tolerant and open and progressive. And that's not an oxymoron you know, a tolerant, progressive Muslim who believes in uh, the separation of, of, of mosque and state, you know, that, that's not a rarity. That is, you know, most people around me in this region. Uh, the minority are the extremists. They are the ones who have distorted, diverted um, the headlines and, and the trends and, and taken it over. And I love that you bring up Nasser Abu Zaid because he was one of those open, progressive Islamic um, scholars uh, and, and scholar of the Arabic language who grew up in a small um, village in Egypt who initially only learned the Quran because that's how you learn to read and write in small villages with, uh, with, the, with the Quran teacher. 
there's nothing ominous about it. I mean, the word madrasa today uh, takes on these, you know, ominous uh, 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 proportions. But I went to a madrasa. It just happened to be a Jesuit school because school is, madrasa is the word for school. Um, so Nasser Abu Zaid grows up learning, you know, the Quran and he gets a bit of math, etc. Then he moves on to, you know, Cairo and he becomes and he rises and he becomes this, this renowned Islamic scholar. And uh, Egypt is changing. Egypt is changing. And in the 90s, um, as he discusses, um, you know, as he discusses, you know, a, a different approach to, um, to, to understanding the Quran via the Arabic language, he, he, he has a run in with a conservative, radical thinker, uh, cleric, who accuses him of being an apostate. And, you know, before these words were, you know, hurled as a potential insult, but suddenly they take on in this, in the 90s, as the, the, the seeds of proselytizing and Saudi influence becomes entrenched in the region, uh, it takes on a different proportion. And, um, Nasser Abu Zaid ends up having to go into exile because as an apostate, he's told he can no longer remain married to his wife, who is a Muslim. She's considered to be still a real Muslim and they don't want a divorce. And they, they think they know that they have the right version of Islam, the right explanation, the right understanding. And so they decide to leave. And another scholar or another thinker, uh, Farak Abu Foda, uh, who challenged Islamists who were feeling more and more empowered in the region because even as Sunnis, they had seen the power of Islam with the rise of Khomeini in, uh, in, 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 in Iran. Initially, even Sunnis were inspired by him. Farak Abu Fora challenges um, Islamist thinkers in a debate and he gets killed soon after. And that is the first assassination in the region on the basis, I think, I think it's the first assassination on the basis of religious thought, religious versus secular thought. Um, and Farag Abu Foda is declared a martyr, a martyr of the nation. Uh, the killers are declared terrorists. Uh, he gets a huge uh, procession through the city. Um, you know, officials from the government show up. But two decades later, Another uh, prominent, um, tolerant, progressive man uh, speaks up against against you know this kind of thinking that apostatizes people. He's the governor of Punjab in Pakistan, and he gets assassinated in 2011. And no one dares, ba barely anyone dares show up to his uh, to his funeral because that's how this radical Islamist. Um, thinking that has become weaponized and militarized has managed to cow everyone into fear. That's not to say that the majority agrees. It's just that if you speak up, you get killed. But I think that is also changing today with the young, uh, with the younger generation. You know, the majority is uh, eager to move on from this dark chapter. Yeah. An important theme in your book involves women's rights. You give gripping accounts of how repressive conditions began to spread in the wake of the moment of 1979. Um, the story of Metab Chana in Pakistan is particularly salient. 
has has that wave of um, gender oppression begun to be turned back? Is there room for some optimism? And can you talk about the role of activists? You give so many um, important uh, profiles in your book. So Mehtab Channa, who becomes Mehtab Rashdi when she um, gets married, was um, a TV anchor in Pakistan who essentially told Zial Haq to go to hell when he told her that she had to put on the veil if she wanted to continue to be on television. You know, she's the woman who said no to the dictator and many others did. And those are the stories that I found incredible to discover, even myself who grew up in this region, who understands the region, who traveled across the region. I didn't know Pakistan very much. Even I discovered so much richness and so much activism throughout these dark 40 years. You know, women in Pakistan were at the forefront of fighting back against the dark ages that Zia al-Haq was trying to impose on the region, uh, sorry, on, on Pakistan. You know, stories that did not get much attention in the West because Zia al-Haq was the darling of the West because he was the man who was helping them, helping the US against, against the Soviets in, um, in, uh, in Afghanistan. And that's what I find a, a real shame, you know, when today, people in, 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 in Europe or in the US ask, where are the moderate Muslims who should stand up when you know, extremists carry out a, a, you know, a, a terrorist attack in the West? You know, the majority in this region, um, you know, it, it, it's not up to them to every time stand up and disavow this one crazy person or five crazy people, or you know, even if there are a couple of thousands, um, but also, they have been doing it. We have been doing it, fighting back against this intolerance and this extremism in our own countries for 40 years, trying to push back against it. Um, but it got very little attention because, you know, it suits several, for several reasons, it suits the West to empower um, uh, strongmen um, and, you know, the the struggles of, of those activists are overlooked and forgotten. The repression of women has, uh, you know, is, is, is connected to that wave and to the rivalry, um, but it's also, um, uh, you know, it's, let's say that the rivalry stopped the natural emancipation of women in this region that was already underway in Lebanon, in Pakistan, in Iraq. Um, the rivalry turned the clock back. Had that year not happened in the way it did, uh, we wouldn't be here today. This region inherited a lot of retrograde colonial laws, you know, um, uh, when it comes to the rights of women, when it comes to... Um, apostasy, uh, a lot of these laws are a result of, are, are left over from colonial time. And we would have probably moved on from them. And a lot of them were being repealed um, already, but the rivalry turned the clock back. And for example, in, in Pakistan, um, things turned back very quickly because Ziyal Haq Islamized the laws similarly in, in Iran. So Jeremy is a different case because it was always, um, you know, very, uh, very conservative. But, you know, laws like, you know, marrying your rapist 
in, in Lebanon, we have that even. Um, that's, a, that's French penal code, uh, which we inherited from French colonial times, which was only repealed in, the, in France in 94. It wasn't implemented anymore, but it was only removed from the books in 94. And now it's been removed in Lebanon as well. So this natural emancipation of, of women and equality was thwarted uh, by these 40 years. There's still a lot of work to do, uh, but I remain very hopeful. Okay, the, the questions of religion, the questions of, of gender and women's rights, uh, I'd describe that all to a kind of realm of culture and society. But now I'd like to proceed to, how should I put it, uh, high politics uh, in, a, in a traditional sense and talk particularly about uh, the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. Um, you have some critical comments about the United States uh, in the initial negotiation, not only with regard to President Obama's failure to respond adequately to Bashar Assad's use of chemical weapons at Gauta, but also with regard to certain political cluelessness. I'm going to quote again from your book, page 298. Although the ultimate goal of the JCPOA negotiation was to freeze the threat of Iranian nuclear program, there was some merit to the broader approach. But it would ultimately fail, in part because in its obsessive pursuit of a deal, the Obama administration did not appreciate how much the regional context had changed between the time the talks began in 2012 and the time they concluded in July 2015, and how this had adversely shaped perceptions of the deal and of America's standing among its allies in the region. Kim, could you talk a bit about how the regional context played a role in that outcome? So this goes back to, um, you know, how Iran and Saudi Arabia perceive each other, how the rivalry plays out, and how the U.S. features in this rivalry. Because I, I do often think that it's a triangle, it's a menage à trois. Um, you know, the Saudis use the Americans to defend themselves, of course, in the region, to build this anti-Iran bloc. They often exaggerated the Iranian um, threat to maintain their hold on the region as much as possible and their hold on the relationship with, with the United States. And that worked roughly the same throughout, you know, since 1979. President Obama and, and, and just to sort of mention, and however, um, there was always, there's always sort of with, with, the, with the Saudis, there is always a level of, um, you know, uncertainty of, um, um, you know, insecurity about their role in the region. I do often think that the, the Saudis are very insecure in their role as custodians of the two holy sites. It comes with a lot of money and that's what allows them also to legitimize their rule and their you know, checkbook diplomacy about around the region helps them do that as well. But their role has often come under scrutiny and criticized. And that's something that the Iranians often bring up again and again, that the Saudis are not good custodians of the two holy sites. But so when President Obama comes in and he decides to launch serious negotiations with the Iranians, the Saudis are very uncomfortable because they find out, of course, that it's been going on behind their back. And they're not really part of the discussion. 
they're worried that they're going to be, you know, they may be paranoid, but we, you know, I'm just trying to explain, uh, they may be, you know, overreacting, but I'm trying to explain their, their perception. They're worried they're going to be dethroned as America's best friend in, um, in the region. And in particular, the issue with the way the Obama administration approached this is that when the negotiations started in secret in 2012, the Arab uprisings were just beginning. Um, the war in Syria was just beginning, or the, the uprising in Syria had just started. Iran was not yet immersed in that conflict. Hezbollah was not yet deployed in, um, in, in Syria. And Iran already felt like it was on the ascent, but things started accelerating after 2012. And the Saudis really did not, um, you know, you know, felt very, um, you know, hard done by by the Obama administration with the way that the the, the, the JCPOA negotiations were accelerating, uh, with President Obama's comment about the fact that Saudi Arabia and Iran could share the region, and they felt that they could no longer count on the Americans for their self defense, and so as they saw that the Iranians uh, were getting all this love, let's say, from Washington and all these lovey-dovey meetings between John Kerry and Zarif and, and all of that, uh, they started getting really worried. And they could see that, you know, Iran was getting deeper and more and more deeply involved in, in, in Syria. Hezbollah was deployed. The role of Shia militias was growing in Iraq. Um, the Houthi militias in Yemen overthrew the internationally recognized government. And that basically was all a trigger for Mohammed bin Salman, Crown, uh, still Minister of Defense at the time, later Crown Prince, to say, you know what? We clearly can't count on the, on the Americans to defend us. Look at how they're cozying up to the Iranians. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to war in Yemen. That was what started, what launched the war in, in Yemen in 2015, this reaction, this new Sunni front, this coalition that was essentially anti-Iran and was a message to, to the Americans. You know, if you want us to share the region, this is how we're going to do it. So it's very important um, for, you know, American administrations to understand that they don't have just a relationship with the Saudis or just a negotiation with the Iranians. It's part of a context and everything affects everything. Okay, that will, brings us up to the moment of 2015 and the initiation of the JCPOA. President Trump leaves it and now we're back in Vienna uh, trying to renegotiate, to negotiate a return into the JCPOA. This goes beyond the horizon of your book uh, in narrow sense, but I can't, I can't uh, miss the opportunity of asking uh, how you see the prospects of the current negotiations uh, going on in Vienna. Are they going to be successful? I would certainly hope so. I would hope so. I think the JCPOA, as a... As a uh, as a goal in itself, is, is an essential goal, is an essential um, uh, agreement. And it was essential at the time. It's just that it was not done in context. But it's also important, again, to take into consideration the context. Since 2015, and 
up until today. Despite the maximum pressure imposed by the Trump administration, Iran is still quite powerful, um, but it's also in a corner. It's, I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it takes very little for Iran to be powerful in asymmetrical ways because it has militias. It has a network of militias and it thrives on chaos. It thrives on smuggling. It thrives on siphoning of funds. But it is also in a corner. It cannot sustain this. So the maximum pressure of President Trump um, did deliver a certain leverage for the Biden administration to use in its negotiations today with the Iranians. It's important to return to the JCPOA, um, but my, my, my advice would be not at all cost. And the lifting of sanctions, you know, the US is committed to that, but I would hope that there should be some constraints or some possibilities for snapbacks. I know it's very hard to ascertain how that money is used, you know, President Obama thought it would be used for building highways and infrastructure. It didn't quite work out like that. So I don't know what are the policy tools today to ascertain that lifting of sanctions isn't going to mean money flooding to groups like Hezbollah and Shia militias in, in Iraq. Because it actually takes very little to fill up their coffers um, again. And people in this region are worried. Iraqis are worried. The Syrians are worried. The Lebanese are worried. They're worried that groups like Hezbollah or the Hashid in, in Iraq that are still powerful but struggling and are feeling the squeeze um, are suddenly going to feel very comfortable um, again and are going to be able to you know continue to lay the law. That, you know, as you said, you know, the lifting of sanctions, you know, could lead to, to the easing of this pressure um, on, these, um, on these groups. And so, again, you know, it's important to do things in context. And I do see this administration doing things in context. I don't see them rushing to, into this agreement. I don't see them talking only to the Iranians. I see them trying to bring the Saudis on board. I see them talking to the Israelis. I see a regional effort, or let's say, I see a real effort by the Biden administration to do this as a sort of 3D regional puzzle. Um, they, you know, um, um, imposed, you know, they released the, the, the report on the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Uh, they sanctioned some Saudi officials, they didn't sanction MBS, but they, did that right after they hit some Iranian assets in, in Syria. They are talking to the Iranians, but they're also reassuring the Saudis that, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, that, that Saudi Arabia is still an ally, a partner, let's say, um, and, and the US, you know, um, will, uh, will help it with its self-defense. So I see a more measured, more holistic approach um, to the region. And we'll have to see how, how it concludes, because the U.S. is not the only player in this equation. The Israelis, the Saudis, the Iranians, everyone has their agenda. Okay, thank you. Uh, before concluding, I want to take it back down to the cultural level, how people sort of on the ground, if I can put it that way, experience this. It's been 42 years since 1979. It's a long time. And at the end of Black Wave, you talk about some generational divides. 
how today's youth, some participating in social or protest movements, ask their parents how they could participate in the sectarian radicalism of the past. Um, Mom and dad, what did you do in 1979? So some of this history must play out on the level of intergenerational challenges at the family level. Do youth blame their parents for participating in the politics of 1979? Some young people ask their parents, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? But it's very hard in the heat of the moment to really understand the full context of an event and the ramifications. You know, I think that, um, you know, revolutionaries of Iran who were seeking to bring down the Shah, and that includes people around Khomeini, who were leftist, nationalist, uh, progressive Islamists, who thought they were using Khomeini to unleash further numbers, further um, millions of Iranians onto the street by appealing to um, those who were um, uh, going to the mosques. Um, they didn't know how this could end up unseating them and eating them alive. You know, revolutions eat their children. Because political Islam in this way was not really part of the landscape. Uh, yes, you had the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt and Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, repressed them and threw them in jail. And they had, you know, uh, a vision for uh, being in power and so on. But these were still, to some extent, marginal trends in the region, in a region that was full of lots of other different trends from, you know, communism to left, to, to Marxism, to capitalism, you know, it was all there. Um, and so the revolutionaries who brought down the Shah, first of all, they didn't realize that, you know, Khomeini would be ruthless in the takeover of the revolution. And even when a question was put to the people in Iran in 1979, whether they wanted an Islamic Republic, they said overwhelmingly yes, because they had no idea what it meant. They'd never seen that before. And they saw the word republic, and most of them thought, well, that's better than a monarchy. So yes, and we're Muslims, who, who would say no um, to, to that? So I think people were not aware of the, 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 the trend that was just beginning and what it was going to mean. And neither were the French um, philosophers and intellectuals who sang the praises of Khomeini because they saw in the Iranian revolution a, um, a leftist movement with universal values for the people that was a continuation in a way of their own you know, aborted or failed revolution of 1968. And in Saudi Arabia, the, 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 the change from a conservative country to a hyper-conservative country, from a country that was beginning to open up to a country that completely shut down again in the 80s, was so slow that it was a little bit of the boiling frog syndrome. Before you know it, before you realize what's happened, it's too late. And that's what's so interesting about the slow awakening 
of the new generation in the region who look back at 1979 and think, how could you? And we don't want this anymore. And I really hope that they can take this region forward now. If I could just follow up on that comment before closing, there's an important strain of optimism in a book that talks a lot about difficult history. Where's your hope for the future? Well, like I said, I, I grew up in the war in, in Lebanon, and I always say that um, I turned out okay. Um, it's nothing to be thankful for growing up in a war, but it made me who I am. And so I do think that you can turn adversity into great positivity. And I do think that, you know, if, if we had all given up in the war during the Civil War, if we'd not sort of, you know, try to keep going and, you know, find the hope, find the optimism, find the solutions, you know, that's just too depressing. And so I remain hopeful uh, because I see a lot of great people around me. Uh, I, you know, I may sound naive or, or Pollyannish. I know the, the odds are stacked against us in this region. I know um, it's not only about us. It is also about, um, you know, what Western powers will do or what Saudi Arabia will do or what Israel will do. It is not just up to the people. You know, I write this book with a great focus on the, the role that Saudi Arabia and Iran have played in bringing this region to the abyss because too often we blame everything on the West. But I don't absolve America uh, of its faults, of its backing of dictators who imprison activists and who are today, uh, you know, in Egypt, you know, Abdel Fattah Hassisi, you know, 60,000 political prisoners. Um, you know, I don't, um, I don't absolve the West of its sort of acquiescence to dictatorships that aren't friendly to the West, like the Assads in Syria. Um, but I do think we have agency. And I think the, a lot of young people have realized that the solution has to come from here. It is not going to sort of just arrive from outside, but we cannot do it alone either. You know, today, um, you know, I just wrote a piece in The Atlantic about the young generation, the second, the second generation of protesters and activists. You had the 2011 uprising, the class of 2011, I call them, and today you have the class of 2019. The class of 2011 thought that their revolutions and their optimism and their uh, vision for the future and their hope would bring down the regimes and would usher in, you know, a new, a new era. But the deep, deeply entrenched um, uh, dictatorships and their systems, you know, don't give up that easily. So 10 years later, things look worse except that a younger, a young generation, a new generation of protesters has learned a few things. They've learned that they, need, that they need to get their hands dirty. They need to do politics. They need to do retail politics. They need to accept to run, even in a corrupt system, to try to change it from the inside. They're going to go up against gerrymandering and rule bending and, um, and cheating by the system, but they're going to have to do it. And I see them getting organized. Um, because they realize that you can't just bring down the regime. You have to build a state. But it's going to be very difficult because, you know, the odds and the rules are stacked against them. And because in some countries like Lebanon and Iraq and Afghanistan, I know it's not part of the region, but I look at Afghanistan often as well, they're being hunted down and killed. You know, dozens of them. It's, um, you know, it's a massacre. 
And I don't have an answer to how you protect them. You know, as they race against time and against death to try to change the system and to run for these elections, elections which can sometimes be canceled, um, I don't know how you protect them, but they're not giving up. And so, you know, there were times when I was writing the book where I got really depressed because it is very dark. But um, I remain hopeful because I met so many incredible people, so much culture, so much political maturity, so much tolerance, so much diversity. And I'm hopeful today by what I see with these young people who are trying to get organized. But accountability and an end to impunity is essential in this region. And I don't think it can happen unless the US begins to reframe the way it looks at the region and understands that long-term stability in this region will not come from dictators. It will only come from the empowerment of people to change the system from within. Kim, thank you for the conversation. We've learned a lot about the Middle East and for our listeners to learn a lot more, I recommend Kim's book, The Black Wave, an important resource for anyone interested in the recent history of the Middle East and I suppose its future as well. I found it easily on Amazon. As always, I want to thank our listeners. You can follow Hoover's Working Group on the Middle East at www.hoover.org caravan. The Hoover Institution is on Twitter at hooverinst, I-N-S-T. And I'm Russell Berman on Twitter at RussellBermanSF. Please return to listen to our future discussions for the Caravan podcast later this month when my caravan partner, Cole Bunzel, will interview Ray Teke, an expert on Iran at the Council on Foreign Relations, about his new book, The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty, as well as recent developments in U.S.-Iran negotiations. I hope you'll be joining. Thank you. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.